Well, good morning, everyone. Let me ask you this. What's your favorite song and why? I just want you to think about it. What's your favorite song and why? Uh, you, got that? you got the song in your head? No? <laughs> What's one of your favorite songs? So there used to be a radio show uh, when I used to listen to the radio more regularly. They'd have listeners call in and they'd play this game uh, where they would start playing a track and, and the first person to name, uh, name that song won. And so we're going to play a song and uh, once you know what it is, put your hand up. You don't need to shout it out. I just want to know. As, uh, the first person to get this, just put your hand up. Um, it's one of my favorite songs, so if you know what kind of music I like or if you like the same music, you have a slight advantage. Um, so we're just going to see how this goes. <laughs> so the song is uh, U2's Where the Streets Have No Name. And uh, it's one of my favorites, like I said. And um, in general, the songs that mean the most to me, uh, actually, I think, I think it was Chris and Dave who might have put their hands up first. So um, you both win um, a few claps. Um, <laughs> In general, the songs that mean the most to me are, are ones that spoke most incisively into whatever situation I was in, the, the ones that just articulated uh, what I was trying to say, but maybe I was having trouble finding the words for. Uh, some, like uh, Where the Streets Have No Name, are, are kind of like grand life anthems, you know, expressing a yearning for, for a better place. Uh, other songs might be more specific to a particular context. Um, I remember one time calling into a radio station to request the song Open Arms by Mariah Carey uh, for my middle school crush. <laughs> I was so ecstatic when I got on and then uh, I actually recorded it on a tape and then I accidentally recorded over that tape. Um, it was more for me than for her, actually. Uh, but anyway, um, songs that uh, speak, speak to more uh, particular context. I, um, I sang the, the old hymn, uh, it is well with my soul at my grandmother's funeral. Um, that had particular meaning for me. Because sometimes our words can feel too inadequate. You know, they can feel too small. And this is, can be especially true when we consider all that feels wrong uh, in the world uh, as a result of sin, uh, human-made disasters, tension and conflict between different groups on the basis of color or creed, injustice, marginalization, inequality, as well as all that feels wrong in us as a result of sin. Our addictions, our heartbreaks, our depression and loneliness, uh, the ways we hurt those around us. Sometimes we need to lean on the words of others. Sometimes you need to be reminded that you are not the only one to have gone through what you're going through or to have felt what you're feeling. You're not the only one to have gone through what you're going through or to have felt what you're feeling. For the last few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series on the, on the book of Psalms uh, called the Songs of the Heart. And the Psalter, the book of Psalms, as it's sometimes called, is, is a collection of songs written by a, a number of people, including King David, which became both the songbook and the prayer book of the people of Israel. And it remains so for many Jews and Christians uh, to this day. In fact, most Christians, for most of the Christian era, learned to pray and learned their theology by praying the Psalms, by singing the Psalms. Psalms were written hundreds and even thousands of years ago, uh, but they can still put words to what we feel today. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at, at Psalm 13, a song of grief and lament, a cry to God to answer, How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? We've looked at Psalm 23, a song of trust in the presence and provision and perseverance of God. Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. We've looked at songs crying out for justice and rescue, songs of praise and songs of protest, songs that speak of God's presence and songs that question that same presence. Songs that wonder whether God is really faithful and songs that appeal to that very faithfulness. Songs that ask God where God is and songs that affirm God's imminence, God's nearness, God's proximity. And today to close out our series, we're going to look at the bookends, the first and last psalm, Psalm 1 and Psalm 150. So let's start with Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like the chaff that the wind blows away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the opening statement of the book of Psalms. It sets the tone and the frame for everything that comes after. Blessed, happy, fulfilled is the one whose whole life is committed to the Lord who does not walk with the wicked or stand with sinners or sit in the company of scoffers. And those three verbs there, walk, stand, and sit, they're intended to encapsulate every part of life. For the people of Israel, blessing was the outcome of delighting in and meditating on and living out the law of the Lord, the Torah. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, Psalm 1, it announces that the primary agenda for Israel's worship life is obedience to order and conduct all of life in accordance with God's purpose and ordering of the creation. The fundamental contrast of this psalm and all of Israel's faith is a moral distinction between righteous and wicked, innocent and guilty, those who conform to God's purpose and those who ignore those purposes and disrupt the order. Human life is not mocked or trivialized. How it is lived is decisive. How we live matters. What we choose to do matters. That was the consistent message as we were going through the book of Revelation earlier this fall. In the midst of confusion and chaos, how we live matters. What we choose to do matters. That's the consistent message of our faith. The Apostle Paul would say, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Or how about Jesus' words in Matthew 25? Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the needy, the sick, the imprisoned, whatever you did for one of them, you did for me. How we live matters. What we choose to do matters. It matters whether I give money to someone in need or I spend it on myself. It matters whether I give my time to others or keep it only for myself. It matters whether I respect people's boundaries or pretend they don't exist. It matters whether I speak up when I see injustice or stay silent. It matters whether I indulge my sin or do everything I can to root it out. How we live matters. 
This is what German priest and theologian Karl Rahner writes in words that have been uh, putting the screws to my conscience this week. He said, it seems that my soul has become a huge warehouse where day after day the trucks unload their crates without any plan or discrimination to be piled helter-skelter in every available corner and cranny until it is crammed full from top to bottom with the trite, the commonplace, the insignificant, the routine. What will become of me, dear God, if my life goes on like this? What will happen to me when all the crates are suddenly swept out of the warehouse? How will I feel at the hour of my death? Then there will be no more daily routine. Then I shall suddenly be abandoned by all the things that now fill up my days here on earth. And what will I myself be at that hour when I am only myself and nothing else? My whole life long I have been nothing but the ordinary routine, all business and activity, a desert filled with empty sound and meaningless fury. But when the heavy weight of death one day presses down upon my life and squeezes the true and lasting content out of the many days and long years, what will be the final yield? That last metaphor gets me when when the heavy weight of death presses down and squeezes the true and lasting content out of all of my days and years, what will be my final yield? One of the ways I think about the spiritual journey, the walk of faith, is in terms of maturity, in terms of growth and, and development. And for me, maturity is doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. Doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. And that takes discipline and practice. It takes effort and it takes learning from our failures. It takes humility and it takes a community committed to the same path. Maturity is doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. Well, well how do we know what's right? Well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You can start there. Do good and not evil. Choose life and not death. Walk the path of the righteous and not the wicked. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. All the Psalms are framed by this opening salvo, which says the life of faith is marked by obedience to God. The life of faith is marked by obedience to God and for the people of Israel as revealed in the law and the commandments of God. That's Psalm 1. The Psalms end with Psalm 150, which actually also has six verses. It says, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, that's that term, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The Psalms begin with obedience and they end with praise. It begins with obedience and it ends with praise. This is Brueggemann again. He says Psalm 150 is remarkable because it contains no reason or motivation for praise at all. It's the only Psalm that completely lacks motivation. That's, that's a slide for later. We'll come back to that. 
It's the only psalm that completely lacks motivation. It's the most, he says, it's the most extreme and unqualified statement of unfettered praise. Most extreme and unqualified statement of unfettered praise in the Old Testament. It's situated literally, Psalm 150, at the end of the process of praise. And it is also located theologically at the end of the process of praise and obedience. After all of Israel's motivations have been expressed and no more reasons need to be given. By Psalm 150, Israel fully knows the reasons for praise, perhaps learned through the course of the book of Psalms. This expression of praise, Psalm 150, it overflows with triumph and victory, with joy and effusiveness. You can almost imagine the psalmist lost in worship and wonder, eyes full with life, eagerly exhorting those in his community to join in. For as one commentary put it, the anthem of the redeemed is about to commence. The anthem of the redeemed is about to commence. It reminds me of something we read a couple months ago. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The end game of all creation, tell us, of all creation is to enjoy the divine community, Father, Son, and Spirit forever. We will feast in the house of Zion, as the song goes. We will dwell in the love of God and of neighbor. We will have been transformed. We will have become those who can dwell in the love of God and of neighbor. Those who are capable of dwelling in the love of God and of neighbor. Our lives will be so full of the wonderful presence of God that words will just fall short. Have you ever been so happy? so excited, your heart so full about something that you just couldn't contain it. Maybe that you couldn't even find the words to express it. Can you recall that feeling of spaciousness, that largeness of being as if the very depths of your soul had been exposed to the warmth of sunlight? When I lived in California, this is where this picture comes in, I'd go to the beach as often as I could because the Pacific Ocean for me, the vastness of the sea, the rhythmic pounding of the waves and the tides, it reminds me of the greatness of God. That was a place I felt like I could breathe deeply, a place where I could really rest in the goodness of God. The journey of faith it goes from obedience to praise, from doing something because we know it's right or, or because we've been told it's right to doing something because it gives life to a relationship. 
When I say that maturity is doing the right thing at the right time in the right way, I don't just mean that when we come to a moment of decision, we grit our teeth and choose the right option, though there may be moments like that. But rather, in the process, on the journey, we become the kind of people through building up and practicing those little habits of righteousness that it becomes second nature. If my parents hadn't made me practice piano every day or go to lessons every Wednesday after school, which they would incentivize with McDonald's, I wouldn't have cultivated the musical ability to teach myself to play the guitar in college or to write songs or to lead worship or to be able to lose myself when I'm playing. Instead of thinking about which fingering to do for, for which chord, which I had to do early on and still have to do sometimes when I'm learning a new song, I get to enjoy the music enjoy making music. That's a journey of obedience to praise, duty to delight. But that isn't the whole picture, is it? Life isn't as black and white as it's painted in Psalm 1, and we don't experience the unadulterated joy of Psalm 150 as often as we would like. You know, the first psalm, it actually sounds like it belongs more in the book of Proverbs. The world of Proverbs is very ordered, very predictable. Cause and effect are pretty undiluted. Do good and be rewarded. Do bad and perish. The choice is binary. There is no in-between. There's no nuance. There's no gray. There's no room for equivocation. And the last psalm, when read on its own, it can seem, quite frankly, oblivious to the pain and sorrow and hardship and suffering of the world and of our lives. Not, not just triumphal, but triumphalistic. Not just joyful, but at the risk of sounding harsh, ignorant of reality. We, we face both tendencies in church and in our lives, don't we? Faith formulas for a prosperous life and a head-in-the-cloud spirituality that fails to address the sometimes brutal reality of our lived experience. Indeed, Psalms 2 through 149 seem like an exercise in what happens when everything falls apart. When things don't turn out the way they should, when the righteous don't prosper and the wicked don't perish, when we obey and seem worse off instead of better off, when we don't see the joy of our salvation, but instead experience the death of our dreams. When friends and family turn against us, or when we struggle to find our purpose for our lives or our place in this world, sometimes obedience seems futile. And the psalmists have no problem voicing that to God. The bookends, Psalm 1 and Psalm 150, they express a confident, fearless faith. They invite no protest, they brook no questions, they leave no room for doubt. My suggestion is that they were never meant to stand alone. A faith that is built solely on the bookends stands on a shaky foundation. The conclusion that Karl Rahner came to is this. I now see clearly that if there is any path at all on which I can approach you, God, it must lead through the very middle of my ordinary daily life. It must lead through the very middle of my ordinary 
daily life. There's a word in Hebrew that, that you should know, that I want you to know. It's chesed. Say that with me. Chesed. A little bit of hocking up, hocking up a loogie. Chesed. Sometimes translated as faithfulness or love or kindness or in some older translations, loving kindness. Uh, but there isn't really an English word that encapsulates it. The concept, though, is one of loyal, faithful, committed love that's proven in action and over time. Loyal, faithful, committed love proven in action and over time. It's not momentary and it's not just words or sentiment. It's proven in action and over time. The Psalms are songs of the heart for the life of faith and what I learned from the Psalms is that in order to truly understand the depths of God's love for us, God's faithfulness to us, God's chesed, we have to step out from the comfort and safety of Psalm 1. We have to experience the suffering and questions of Psalms 2 through 149, otherwise known as real life, in order to have any hope of a grounded, informed, more humble expression of Psalm 150. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a Supreme Court Justice, he once said, for the simplicity that lies on this side of complexity, I would not give a fig, but for the simplicity that lies on the other side of complexity, I would give my life. You can stay in the rigid binary of Psalm 1, the simplicity on this side of complexity. You can even try to jump from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, bypassing the middle of the Psalter as if it's hot lava. But in order to truly know God, in order to know God in the reality of our lives, we have to struggle with Him. We have to bring our pain to Him. We have to cry out to Him for justice and deliverance. We have to call on Him as the source of our hope. This is how Brueggemann puts it. He says, Israel's struggle, Israel's struggle with God's chesed in suffering and hope, in lament and him, in candor and in gratitude, and eventual acceptance of God's chesed as the premise of life, permit Israel to make the move from the obedience of Psalm 1 to the doxology, the praise giving of Psalm 150. Israel's singing at the end of the Psalter now is a knowing claim wrought through the anguish of suffering, having moved beyond the simple premise of Psalm 1 to the awe and mystery of communion. There are psalms for every part of the life of faith and every point on the spiritual journey. The psalmists sing from the depths of despair and from the heights of happiness. And if I were to suggest a, a simple spiritual practice, it would be to read and pray through the psalms. If you've never done it before, try it out. Years ago, a mentor suggested to me reading three psalms and a chapter of Proverbs a day. There are 150 psalms and 31 chapters of Proverbs, so they take about a month. I know that some psalms are super long, so you don't have to be legalistic about it. But maybe you may find the psalmist expressing something you've been trying to say or pray but couldn't find the words for. 
on one level, the, the Psalms are a tool for emotional maturity and health, for feeling your feelings, for naming what's going on inside you. Andrea talked a couple weeks ago about the importance of self-examination with God, in God's presence, and how easy it is to pretend we're okay or to ignore what's bubbling under the surface or to push it down and distract ourselves with any manner of thing. Maybe for you, the, the Psalms can be an aid at that first stage, singing your heart songs, expressing your emotions. Our emotions and our feelings, they're, they're, they're thermometers. They're telling us when something's up. They're alerting us to the happenings in our souls. Psychologist Robert Pluchik suggests eight basic emotions from which everything else derives. I mean, you can find all sorts of lists of core emotions. I just wanted to offer one set. He names fear, anger, sadness, joy, disgust, surprise, trust, and anticipation. Uh, honestly, uh, God knows what you're feeling, uh, but sometimes he wants us to know what we're feeling. And having language that we can use can help just a little bit. Having a common language can also help uh, when you're experiencing interpersonal conflict or you're trying to express yourself to another person. Learning to name our feelings is so important. Learning to be completely honest before God and one another is so important. But knowing what to do with those feelings is just as important. Knowing what to do with those feelings is just as important because self-expression in itself isn't the end goal, is it? I'm sure we all know folks who have no problems expressing themselves but are oblivious to the harm they cause in doing so. How do you handle your feelings? You sort of emotionally spurt all over the place like a gushing wound? You ride roughshod over other people's feelings because it's just too uncomfortable to sit with what's going on inside of you? Do you fill the air with noise because you don't know how to deal with someone else's feelings? The Psalms don't just teach us to name our feelings. They teach us how to handle them, what to do with them. See, at a deeper, more foundational level, the Psalms are songs of our hearts as we learn to live lives of faith. And here's the constant, here's the golden thread that's woven throughout the Psalms, throughout the Bible, throughout our lives, throughout our universe. The golden thread, the constant is God. The constant throughout all of the Psalms, it's God. Author Anne Lamott asks, where do we even start on the daily walk of restoration and awakening? We start where we are. We find God in our human lives, and that includes the suffering. Remember that word, hesed, God's loving, faithful presence proven in action and over time. Cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Maybe the spiritual practice you need is to start expressing yourself fully and unvarnished to God. Maybe you've been afraid to say certain things out loud because to do so would make them seem more real. Jesus knows already. Let's not play games with him at our own expense. 
But maybe the spiritual practice you need is to lean on and lean into this community. See, the, the Psalms were sung communally. They were sung together. The people of Israel would express these words as one. Meaning that even if someone may not have been feeling the particular psalm in that particular moment, they would sing it nonetheless as an expression of solidarity and presence with those who were. Even if they didn't feel like it. They'd be like, ah, I hate this psalm. This is not my favorite. I don't like the way the beat goes. It's a stupid melody. They would sing it nonetheless as an expression of solidarity and presence with those who might actually be feeling it. That's what it looks like to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. That's the next stage of maturity, isn't it? For those in pain, it's to invite others in. It's to lean on someone else's shoulder as you limp along, to take the risk of opening yourself up and asking for help. And for others, it's learning to empathize, to sit with those in our community, especially those who are hurting, and maybe not offer advice, but just presence. As a church, we long to see the kingdom of God come on earth as in heaven, in every life and every sphere of life. It means every sphere out there. And so we care for our neighbors and we partner with other organizations to seek the common good, but also every part of every person's life. Every step and every stumble along the way. Centuries after the words of Psalm 1 and Psalm 150 were written, a man came along who said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now he wasn't giving us a new list of things to do. But he was reframing blessing and righteousness. Not in terms of our actions, though we do have a part to play, but in terms of his not in terms of our faithfulness, though he desires it, but in terms of his. Not on the strength of our love for him, though I believe it makes his heart glad, but on the strength of his love. The overflowing, uncontainable, irrepressible love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Dallas Willard said, by proclaiming those in the human order, who in the human order are thought hopeless, by proclaiming them blessed, Jesus opens the kingdom of the heavens to everyone. To everyone. Jesus would have sung the same psalms we read today. He would have sung the songs of ascent on his way up to Jerusalem every year. He would have sung the songs of praise at Passover meals. He named himself the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And from the cross he cried out the opening lines of Psalm 22. Jesus came to live and walk and be among us, Emmanuel, God with us. To step out from the safety of Psalm 1 and into the mess and muck and mire of all the psalms and sorrows that follow. To offer us blessing through grace. 
Blessing through his life and death and resurrection. Blessing through the now present kingdom of God and his spirit within us. See, in Jesus we see, the pers- we see God's hesed in person. Jesus is God's hesed personified. God's faithful, committed love. The love that always trusts, that always hopes, that always perseveres. The love that never fails, the love that will lead us to the simplicity on the other side of complexity, the joy on the other side of sorrow, the worship on the other side of Christ's return. When in the words of the English mystic Lady Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. If there's anything that you take away from these last few weeks as we've been walking through the book of Psalms, I hope that it is the joy and the wonder and the vitality of what it means to spend life and live our lives in the presence of God. There's nothing off limits. There's nothing he can't handle. There's nothing he doesn't want you to bring to him. I know there are people in here today that need to hear that. You've been hanging on to things that you don't need to hang on to. You haven't voiced or vocalized because that'll make it too real. Then you'll have to face it. and You'll have to deal with it. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We're going to come together as a community to partake in the the body and blood of Christ, the, the, the bread that represents the Christ's body that was broken for us that we might experience life and the, the blood that was shed for us that we might know wholeness. That's what, that's what God longs, that we might experience wholeness in him and that we might be agents of that wholeness in the world. We're also going to have prayer uh, counselors in e- either corner. And I want to encourage you. If there's something that you're dealing with, if there's something that you're going through, there's something you need to unburden yourself of, please pray with us. If you would prefer to pray with the person that you've come with, you can do that. But if God is saying something to you today, please don't walk away. Let me pray as this band comes up. God who is with us. Spirit who is at work. Jesus who walks with us. May we hear your words of life. And may we answer. We 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.